Whether you're a political journalist, a religious journalist, an evangelical, an academic or cultural critic, or simply an American who casts a ballot every two or four years and has a vested interest in our common future, my recommendation as you listen to this conversation is to pause and hop online and order a copy of Atlantic staff writer Tim Alberta's provocative new book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Published by HarperCollins, including 17 pages of footnotes and a 22-page index, this book is 498 pages long, but once you start reading it, it sure doesn't feel like it. The first part is personal. In 2019, Tim's father, the late Richard Alberta, died of a heart attack at age 71 after serving for three decades as a senior pastor of Cornerstone Church, an evangelical Presbyterian church in Brighton, Michigan. What happened at his funeral? You'll have to hear Tim tell for yourself, but it's maddening. Tim's father was a former Marine and an anchor in Brighton's community. And last night at a book party, I met Tim's wonderful mother, Donna, who's now herself on staff at Cornerstone, to give you just a flash sense of their ministry and its fecundity. When Tim's family arrived at the church in 1992, it had 350 members. Four years ago, when his dad died unexpectedly, the church had swelled to well over 2,000 members. And as you'll hear in a few minutes, Tim's faith is strong. He's published two New York Times best-selling books already, but his own secure faith consistently comes through. And that's in a lot of places this week. You can hear it on Russell Moore's podcast, on NPR's Fresh Air, on John Ward's podcast, and on lots and lots of other places. For his part, Michael Ware served in President Obama's faith-based office and recently launched the Center for Christianity and Public Life. That new center focuses on personal and public formation, and Michael, in leading it, is currently working on a spring 2024 book wrestling not only with questions of the past, the religious left, religious right, but also with timeless, unresolved questions of power and pluralism and justice and how we can be formed. In sections of Tim's book, focusing on past wrestlings and trappings and interactions with power and future possibilities for better glory, Tim offers to readers what he can uniquely give us as a journalist. We learn the backstories or surprising details about Jerry Falwell, Cal Thomas, Ralph Reed, Mark DeMoss, Russell Moore, Al Mohler, Eric Metaxas, David French, Paula White, Charlie Kirk, Rachel Denhollander, Daniel Darling, Greg Locke, Curtis Chang, and many others. He includes a chapter about Miroslav Volf and Ukrainian Orthodox professor Cyril Overon, who describe what can happen in Russia and Ukraine or in former Yugoslavia when religion is co-opted by authoritarians. And while plenty of ink's been spilt since 2016 in trying to understand how 81% of that year's voting evangelicals helped bring Trump to the White House, Tim's book offers a scholarly history and detailed account that can't fit into a column, can't fit into a political speech. I don't know of another book in the last 10 years that does a clearer job describing why 80 million American evangelicals have arrived at the place where we are, sociologically, culturally, politically, and even theologically. In any case, with a bumpy election year likely on deck, Tim Alberta and Michael Ware are bright lights who I hope will come back to discuss Michael's book in a couple of months. In the meantime, if the key to understanding the future is understanding the past, this carefully researched 498-page book is a wonderful and a timely gift. Enjoy the conversation. Well, 
Well, Tim, I am I'm really pleased to be able to have this conversation with you. Your writing, your journalism has been uh, awfully influential in, in my thinking. And then to to come to this book, which I think you, you really did something special here. I'm, I'm glad to have this conversation. I, I think where I'd love to start is just giving you an opportunity to, to speak about why the focus of this book, you're very clear up front that, and I actually really admired that your, your answer wasn't, I'm focusing on evangelicals here because they're the only religious community with problems. You actually really say, you say there are things going wrong in other religious communities, but this is where my focus is. That has to do with biography, has to do with the state of our politics and what you've reported on. So yeah, why this book? Why why now? And describe the intersection of your, your background and, and the journalistic enterprise of, of this book. Michael, you're you're kind to say those things, and, and I'm happy to to be with you and with Josh. And you know this this is a, a really obviously a really not just an important topic, but increasingly feels like an urgent topic for us to tackle. Those of us in the faith community and those of us outside the faith community, I think it's really difficult to envision a path forward as a pluralistic society without addressing some of these fractures in the church, and then also without addressing the distrust between the church and the broader culture. And if we don't, if we don't take a, take a pretty good whack at that pretty soon, I think we're going to be in trouble. The urgency I felt in writing it was really born out of a couple of things. I, I think, you know, to your point about writing about my specific religious tradition, you have to write about what you know best. You also feel, I think, a responsibility to speak out when you see something wrong in your own tribe, right? In other words, if somebody said to Liz Cheney, yeah, but well, you know, what about those Democrats? And she said, well, okay, well, what about them? Like, yes, they have problems too, but like I am a Republican and this is my view from inside my tribe. And I think for me, you know, I didn't grow up in the progressive church. I didn't grow up in the black church. I, you know, I grew up in a conservative white evangelical church. My dad was a white conservative evangelical pastor. And, you know, it's funny. I spent a long time being almost reflexively defensive of my faith community. I think probably a lot of people are kind of oriented that way, you know, when you see attempts to mock or to marginalize the people who you know and love and care about and sort of caricature them, your knee-jerk reaction is to sort of, I don't know, you guys don't, you know, listen, back off. You don't know these people the way that I do. I think it was becoming increasingly apparent over the last decade that something really was amiss, fundamentally amiss in the evangelical movement. And I continue to try to ignore it and, and kind of turn a blind eye. And it, it really was at the intersection of kind of a high point of my life and the low point of my life. The high point was I had just published my first book and it was selling well and people were telling me how great I was and uh, asking me to consider maybe doing a sequel. And then right at that moment, less than two weeks after that book came out, uh, my dad died very suddenly and unexpectedly. And it was at his funeral, in fact, when Frankly, I just had some very ugly and unpleasant confrontations with people at the church who were sort of getting in my face, wanting to argue about Trump and about, you know, our politics. And and it, it was just so 
it was so striking and so sad. And in a lot of ways, it just at, at that moment became clear to me that this was not something I could ignore anymore. And really, I think I felt the Lord saying to me, you know, like, you are uniquely positioned in this place to speak the truth about what's happening here, but also to try to serve as that bridge between two worlds that do not understand one another terribly well. And so all I've, I think all I've tried to do here, I hope all I've tried to do is really those two things to, to shine a light into the darkness here, both to expose what is wrong and try to illuminate what is right in the church and, and can be right again, if, if we sort of get out of our own way as believers. One of the things that you do really well, which I think a lot of folks are struggling with, and I think a lot of folks are trying to sort of simplify, and I think it's informed both by your background as, as, a, as a PK, as a pastor's kid, but also American Carnage and, and what you did for, for that book is, you know, identifying when things went sour, And I think there's a lot of sort of convenient storytelling now that like it all began when Trump went down that escalator and, and, you know, there really weren't problems before then. And you certainly mark sort of Trump's rise as a pivotal moment, but throughout the book, not just sort of as a, as a caveat. So then you could move on, but throughout the book, through your, the historical sort of lens that you bring and also, like the political reporting, you talk about the Romney campaign, you talk about the Bush years. So I, I guess my question for you is, where do you identify the sort of origin story of some of the pathologies and some of the difficult places in evangelicalism, particularly where it intersects with, with politics? And and why, in light of that, was is Trump still a significant point that sort of brought this to light for many people? There's almost two ways to answer the question of, you know, where did things start to go wrong? The first way of answering it is, well, you know, in the Garden of Eden, right? Like, you know, we we believe that that sin nature causes humans to stray from God and to seek their own power and seek their own influence and to try to control events. And that breeds, among other things, the sort of idolatry that in so many ways is the focus of this book, the, the, the national idolatry, the political idolatry, the displacing of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of America that we, that, that, that we have here. I think more specifically, though, the answer is things probably started to go sideways in the 70s when you had a lot of, I think, Bible-believing evangelical Christians begin to feel as though their country was being overrun and that their viewpoints were being marginalized, that their cultural status was being eroded, and that if something wasn't done to turn the tide, then this country would be taken over by godless secularists who would banish the Almighty from public life and persecute Christianity. Now, if that sounds familiar... It's the same rhetoric we're hearing today, right? It's not much has changed. I think what has changed is probably the scale at which that sort of rhetoric is practiced. You know, there was, and and frankly, let me be even more blunt about that point. 
I think back in the 70s and into the early 80s with the rise of Jerry Falwell Sr. and the moral majority, a lot of the people peddling that rhetoric back then didn't actually believe it, to be clear. They, they didn't. I mean, they may have believed it sort of at the, at the margins, but they did not believe in a country that was still, you know, 90% plus self-identifying as Christian, you know, 80% plus still going to church on Sundays, right? Like religiosity in public life was not in crisis at that moment. So they were sort of playing off of some of this fear and exploiting it for political purposes, but they didn't really believe that there was some clear and present danger to Christianity in, in America. I think now many people do believe the rhetoric. They truly do view partisan political disputes as a proxy for good versus evil. And once you have gotten to that place, I think all bets are off. And so when you look at Donald Trump running in 2016, say, promising Christians that they will have power. I mean, he said that explicitly. If you elect me, I will give you power. And then running in 2020, on a very dark message around saying, you know, look, Biden essentially represents the devil and and he's going to hurt God. This is a spiritual war yes. and, and and I will protect you. I, I am your sort of righteous protector. You can see how the rhetoric has escalated and you can see how a Trump figure came to be embraced as a sort of champion of people who feel marginalized and almost endangered in this kind of post-Christian culture. I agree with you. There was this sense of, well, this is a political campaign. This is a political environment. You don't need to take all this stuff so seriously from the religious right, from the foul walls, from the folks. But but the, the truth is, like, people in the pews, some of them, many of them did take it seriously. And uh, I think there's a there's a narrative over time of this sort of disappointment with Republican leadership that hey, you told us things were getting bad, but then when you have the power, you don't really seem to do anything with it. And Trump seemed to actually take the rhetoric more seriously, even though he was so detached from evangelical culture, the many of the evangelicals who advanced it. Uh, it, it there is a sort of, um, you do so much reporting within churches and not all of it will draw out folks sympathy some of it is very very troubling but there are other aspects at which you at which you say you know these are not political scientists the, the, these are folks who are trying to do their best with limited information limited time and processing what they're being told about the state of our country the state of our politics and they haven't been told a very good story for decades and so that level of understanding is an important aspect of the book you have this line in the book you write, I turned to Torres. This is why I concluded he didn't want to turn the Ukrainian fundraising effort into a dispute over Vladimir Putin. Exactly, he said. They might have been watching Tucker Carlson all week, but they're still going to write a check on Sunday morning. That's the best of the American Christian psyche, even if it's also the worst of the American Christian psyche. These are good people, Sanders insisted. They have the Father's heart. They want to be like Jesus, but they've lost their way a little bit. We need to bring them back. And it's that tension that I, I just think is so important for readers to, to get. Do you want to, can you unpack that a, a little bit? What is the disconnect between the sort of heart of some of the Christians that you write about and then how that 
plays out in politics. Yeah, I mean, of course. And I think in, in many ways, that is the fundamental tension that we're getting at here. You have, so that, that scene you're describing is I, I'm up in the Hudson Valley in New York at the church where I was born, actually, where my dad had been saved and where he worked his first job out of seminary as an associate pastor. And I was back there visiting with a friend of our families who is the senior pastor at this church who has just been absolutely put through the ringer there over the last five years and very nearly quit the ministry because of everything he had to deal with. And we're having a conversation at the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine where he and his church are holding a special offering to raise funds to send to humanitarian relief efforts on the ground in Ukraine. And they enlist this woman from their church who's Ukrainian to help record a special message for this for this fundraising effort. But in her special message, as they're taping it, this woman starts sounding off on Vladimir Putin and talking about how he's a war criminal and describing the atrocities going on on the ground there. And so the pastor and his staff are really sort of stuck because... They don't, they're worried that if they include that piece of it in the fundraising video on Sunday morning, that a bunch of their congregants who have been marinating in Fox News primetime all week are going to say, no, 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 Putin is the good guy, Zelensky's the bad guy, right? So they ultimately, the pastor and his team, they make the decision to cut that part of the video out. And, which to me, I, I felt a little disappointed. And I said, well, but isn't this a good opportunity to sort of confront the people in your pews and, and sort of force a conversation about discernment and truth? And, and he has a very defensible answer. He says, you know, listen, once, once I get sucked into that terrain of arguing about the, the legitimacy of Tucker Carlson and uh, whether what they're hearing on Fox News primetime is, is true or false, suddenly I'm playing on their turf. And really, I want them playing on my turf. I want to get to them through theology. And once I can get to them enough through theology, then they on their own, hopefully, will start to reevaluate the information that they're taking in. But right now, we've got a humanitarian crisis on the ground in Ukraine. We need to raise as much money as we can to go help these people. Uh, and the folks in my church, even if they have been marinating in a lot of this bad information all week from right wing media, they, because they have the father's heart, when they see a video describing all of the human suffering happening on the ground there, they are reflexively going to pull out their checkbook and write a check because that's that is the father's heart. They want to help. But when but but it's when the sort of naked politics get injected into it, the tribal tension suddenly could cause them to say, well, wait a second, I was going to write a check, but not if it's at the expense of betraying, you know, Tucker Carlson or not if it's at the expense of sort of in some way undermining what I believe to be true about Vladimir Putin or whatever. So it's a fascinating tension and, and different pastors who I met throughout my journeys have decided to address it in very different ways. But I think that scene is a pretty representative window into how a lot of the American clergy are now tiptoeing around a lot of this and trying to keep their churches intact and reach these people by playing the long game rather than directly confronting them. Right. And it's not the only stop you make in the country, right? Uh, I mean, you you have that line about churches not sort of being seen by some pastoral leaders as a as a bride to be loved, but a, a battlefield to be conquered. I think Charlie Kirk was not, of course, a pastor himself at all. Turning point. 
you take readers on a massive tour around the country, deep into Trump country, deep into the Midwest, deep into the East Coast, deep in the West Coast. You, you introduce us, whether they're familiar voices or not, to a lot of people. You know, it's the David French and Russell Moore and Christianity Today crowd in some sense on maybe a side, Cal Thomas, Phil Riken, but a lot of voices uh, on a different side, uh, as it were. David Barton, Robert Jeffress in Dallas, yo, Charlie Kirk, I mentioned, Eric Metaxas, the Herschel Walker race, a deep engagement with Ralph Reed. You take us a lot of places, Rachel Denhollander and her exchange with the SBC. It's, a, it's sort of a tour de force. And by the way, it's a 498-page book. So if you're buying it for Christmas, you know, make a little time over the holidays to read this one. But what is the aha that you're discovering when you think about evangelicalism in the last eight years? It's a great question, Josh. I, I think, yes, it, it, in some way, and I want to be clear, you know, with, with the import, all important caveat that when we talk about evangelicals, even conservative white evangelicals, you know, we're talking about tens of millions of people here, right? And, and there's a whole wide spectrum that I try to really treat with, with great nuance, especially early in the book as I'm introducing these folks. I think in some sense, though, specific to the question about generational change and generational tension, there's no doubt in the sweep of my reporting, time and again, what you're running into is a, a, a sense of aggrievement and, and fear and grievance from the older generation, you know, from folks who are my parents' age, your parents' age, a lot of those folks who were, you know, kind of really coming to their own political awareness at that moment that intersected with, you know, the moral majority and with Jimmy Carter's one term in office and, and all of the sort of the, the merging and conflating of politics and, and faith identities, what you see all over the place, at least what I have seen and documented in my own reporting is how the children of that era, the children of the moral majority, as I described them at one point, and I would really consider myself to be a child of the moral majority. I think my parents were sort of uh, emblematic of that in some sense. The children of the moral majority, the people who are now you know, in their 20s and 30s and raising kids of their own, they are really thinking about these things very differently, whether it's in the you know, deconstructionist talk, um, whether it's people who call themselves ex-evangelicals, whether it's people who leave the church altogether, or whether it's people who still are very much part of the evangelical church, but who don't even use the term evangelical. They just would rather not touch it. There, there's a lot of scar tissue built up around those, those, those terms and around those relationships. And I do think that to David's comment there that you quoted, David describing to Russell how there are these spasms, these death spasms generationally. It certainly felt that way to me when you would when you would talk with the, the, the sort of moral majority era folks about what they saw happening in the country and the threats they saw to the church. It was almost entirely external. They saw threats coming from the outside for the church on the inside. Whereas when you talk to people in my generation, almost entirely the threat that they describe is from within the church, right? They, they see something completely different and they will sort of, uh, you know, in, and I think mostly in a respectful, loving way, but they will point back to the previous generation and they will unpack some of those death spasms and some of the sort of tribal cultural warfare. And, and they can pretty clearly diagnose how it went wrong in ways that the older generation, I think, can't because they've just been too wrapped up in it for too long. 
Yeah, Tim, you noted there are two sort of theories of change going on. One is this, let's try and drive people back to theology and bring a theological approach to politics. You know, start from theology and then try to move move out. But as you describe at Floodgate, and as Josh mentioned, some of these Charlie Kirk events, there is this other model, which is, no, we're going to bring politics into the church. So there's a pastor who takes time to, I forget what he calls them, there is his his headlines or his, yeah, his head, sort of headline news. Headline news. I also was struck, I don't know if you saw this, Tim, but the, the family leader had a candidate forum uh, in the last few months. And I was really struck the sort of religious rights of the moral majority sort of pretense and sort of drive was, we're going to bring these politicians to us and we're going to make them answer questions from from me, Jerry Falwell, from me, Pat Robertson. But at the family leader event in the last few a few months, uh, it wasn't a clergy member who was interviewing the politicians who came. It wasn't someone with whose credibility came out of the church, it was Tucker Carlson. That Tucker Carlson was the moderator for the family leaders, sort of religious right convening. And I thought that was such a a portrait of this, this change. Now the credibility is we could get, we, the evangelical church, can get a, a Fox News pundit to to come to us and and be our voice, which seems like such a flip from the past. So talk a bit about how politics is driving the conversation, even in the context of, of church environments. Michael, I'm so glad you mentioned that because you're right. And I thought the same thing. I mean, it's it's really the tail wagging the dog now in some sense. And listen, the question I think at its core really is, do you view faith through the context of your politics or do you view politics through the context of your faith? And I understand that this can be a slippery slope, right? Uh, I, I think a lot of folks want to believe that they are in the latter category when in fact they are in the former. The, the problem seems to be that for, for many people, there is an inability to compartmentalize. There, there is an inability to sort of put up rigid boundaries around their politics and make sure that it does not bleed into something, that their healthy civic engagement does not bleed into a sort of unhealthy political obsession bordering on idolatry. What we've, what we've seen, particularly, I think, in, in the last five or six years, with COVID-19, with Donald Trump's presidency, with George Floyd, with a lot of this kind of, you know, the, the, the unraveling of the national fabric writ large, specific to the church, what you've seen is a massive realignment among a lot of believers who have no doctrinal differences, no, no theological fractures, disagreements, but really a fundamental tension around how deeply engaged should the church be in politics, if at all. So you've got some pastors who have just sort of staked out uh, one poll over here and said, you know what, 
even though I am personally pro-life, even though most of my congregants are personally pro-life, we're just not going there. We're not even going there on abortion because for too many of the people in my pews, it's like a gateway drug. Like as soon as we bring up abortion, well then, okay, what about sexual ethics? Oh, if we're going to get, if we're going to go there, well then what about immigration? Well, okay. Then what about refugees? Then what about, you know, and the next thing, you know, you know, the floodgates have been thrown open and you are engaged in sort of full spectrum political conversations from the pulpit, which I think for most pastors, they just don't want to go there. Then I think you have, you know, a little bit more in the middle of the spectrum. You do have some pastors who I think are seasoned enough and sophisticated enough where they can be pretty savvy, right? They can really pick and choose their spots, you know, whether it's around the life issue or around, you know, gun violence or around, poverty or something that they feel very strongly about. And frankly, they'll say, look, this isn't a political issue. This is a moral, spiritual issue. And that's why I'm choosing to address it specifically. But that's all I'm addressing. We're we're not going any further. But then I think as you drift towards the far end of the spectrum, you've got a lot of these folks who just, it becomes mission creep, right? I think a lot of them don't get into this with the intention of turning their Sunday mornings into Fox News segments. But suddenly, one day it's abortion, the next day it's same-sex marriage, the next day it's refugees, and and the next thing you know, they've just sort of lost the plot. And theology is no longer the entree with a little bit of politics on the side. Suddenly, politics is the entree with a little bit of theology on the side. And that slope is extraordinarily slippery. and, And I've seen that play out all kinds of different church settings. And really, what's interesting is, as I've tracked some of the churches where politics has really become the entree, you saw, especially during the COVID moment, you saw explosive growth in some of those churches. What's been interesting to me, though, is more recently, even just like in the last nine to 12 months, I've been tracking some of those churches. And you've actually started to see now a little bit of leveling off. And some folks who I think have come down from kind of the sugar high of the COVID moment uh, and and Trump and January 6th and George Floyd and all of that. And, and I think they've maybe started to get a little exhausted with it and question, is this sustainable? Do, you know, do I, what am I going to church for? So I don't think that there's a neat, clean narrative for us to tell about where this is going from here, because I think that that tension really does remain. And you know, actually, that's one of the things I liked most about this book. It could easily be 498 pages, if you count all those footnotes in the <laughs> index, you know, of, of this political journalist telling us what he thinks about the good guys and the bad guys. And there's one side and there's another side. And you know, if you think Eric Metaxas is green versus red, you know, like this book or not like that. It's not like that. The book, instead, it talks about your own wrestlings with returning to your own family's church, you know, after your dad died, Cornerstone and the pull towards saying something political versus not, and the wrestling with it, and, you know, Russell saying, you know, there's one way to think about the Southern Baptist Convention. I think he says, like, the hope of the world we used to think is America. The hope of America is the church. The hope of the church is evangelical revival. And the hope of evangelical revival is the SBC. So, you know, we're kind of that hope of the world, really. You know, and and you, you think that seems a little crazy, a little myopic, but then you think, well, I can understand that. You know, these are guys who really believe what they said they believe. So I, I can, I'm empathetic to that. And I think his transformation to, to sort of appreciating the role of being an orphan ourselves and not being an established tribe, not having to do the work of protecting the church 
as you can certainly understand, you might want to do if your church is under accusation of an abuse scandal or other trouble, financial trouble. You got to protect the church. You got to protect the institution. But but you are sort of sympathetically drawing us into the voices of those who either experience the downside of those realities, Rachel Den Hollander, her call for repentance and forgiveness, or many others who who were in other places and experienced that same tension between dominance on the one hand and growth possibility on the other. I know we need to eventually learn about Michael Ware's new book, you know, which is Dallas Willard. But as I, I noticed that you cite Miroslav Volf at some length in this book, as if there's some connection with some of his story. How, how do you think about, with those themes in mind, what Miroslav Volf is going for compared with dominance? You know, it's so interesting, Josh. And of course, I have you and Faith Angle Forum to thank for coming into contact with Miroslav uh, you were kind enough to invite me on one of your outings, which happened to be in France right after the election of 2022. And there was such a fascinating exchange there between Miroslav Volf, who is the Yale theologian raised in the former Yugoslavia, and Cyril Hoverun, who is a Russian Orthodox dissident now, who was at one point the sort of theological aide-de-camp to Patriarch Kirill, who many people describe as the second most powerful man in Russia, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. And the, the conversation that these two gentlemen had there in France was, I think, compelling on, on, on so many different fronts. They were really dissecting how identitarian movements are are dangerous in their own right, but but once they incorporate and weaponize faith, that they become they, they go from dangerous to deadly. And in many historical examples, uh, we're talking deadly at you know tragic scale. I mean, you know, some of the great crimes, war crimes, and otherwise throughout history have have come as a result of this sort of religious justification for identitarian conflict. And I think from from myself and probably for some of the other Westerners in the room, particularly the other Americans in the room, it was very difficult not to hear that conversation through the lens of Trumpism and through the lens of this crisis in the American evangelical movement, because it's one thing to vote for a political candidate. It's one thing to support a certain set of policies. And what I really try to do again and again, especially in the early stages of the book, is is explain how, you know, there's a there's a whole spectrum as it relates to Donald Trump and how lots of, you know, really good, decent evangelical Christians voted for Trump, but were still able to hold him accountable. We're we're still able to to act uh, responsibly with their politics and sort of keep their politics out out of their faith and, and really be able to compartmentalize these things in a in a good way. It's one thing to pragmatically, you know, support a candidate or support a party, support a certain set of policies, but when you come to view those policies and that and that party, that candidate, that movement as core to your identity, what you're essentially doing is you are not necessarily displacing your religion, but you're kind of pushing your religion to the side and you're merging the two things. There, there's um, there's a story in Second Kings, I believe, where the Israelite leaders, uh, they see the Assyrian idol that's been built and they say, hey, that's really beautiful. We'd like one of those. And so they, they, they have 
the goldsmith or whoever go make that same idol for themselves, this beautiful idol of gold, and they bring it into the temple. And what they do is they they don't push the the altar to the to Yahweh off the stage. They just move it over a little bit, right? And suddenly you've got you've got the two things coexisting, and you know that's what we see now in in this sort of identitarian Christian nationalist movement, if I dare say those two words, because everybody's ears are going to perk up. But I think so much of what Miroslav and Cyril were describing there in France about what is happening in Ukraine vis-a-vis Vladimir Putin's religious justification for that invasion, I don't think it's terribly far removed from some of the same rationale, some of the same religious justification that we see for the ongoing political conflict here in the U.S. And I think that's deeply troubling to a lot of us. That's amazing that sometimes we use theological language to describe it, but really it's sociological. Yes, that's right. Tim, I want to turn to the the latter third of, of the book. As Josh mentioned, you have these profiles that aren't entirely sort of positive profiles, but but you certainly lift up what I take to be, in your view, exemplars in in some way. What lessons do you want readers to take from that last third of of the book? I'm not asking you to cast up a, a full vision for the future of you know evangelical public engagement, but I I do you think. Uh, evangelicals should have taken up Cal Thomas's call for a temporary withdrawal, which which I'll note is very similar to the call that David Quo issued at the end of his book, Tempting Faith. What do you want us to take from from this last third of the the book about about the way forward? I think three things that are thematically really important throughout the book, but especially in the in the final section. The first thing is just truth, right? That at its at its essence, the gospel is truth. We as believers are called to pursue truth, to prize truth, to cling to truth. And that and we we're told that the truth will set us free ultimately. And it feels as though for too many in the church, truth has taken a backseat to sort of, you know political alliances to compromises that feel necessary in the moment. And ultimately, if, if there's a way out of this for, for anyone who identifies as an evangelical Christian, and if you are trying to reach your neighbor who is not an evangelical Christian, and they, according to most social science research, they at this point have a really negative view, a really a pretty dismal view of, of the church. And they probably want nothing to do with what you're trying to tell them. The credibility of the witness of Jesus Christ suffers so dramatically from these deviations from truth. In other words, if the message of Jesus Christ is to be taken seriously by the outside world, then we as messengers have to be credible. We have to be reliable. We have to be trustworthy. And that starts with telling the truth, even when it may inconvenience us in our in our lives, politically and culturally and, and otherwise. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is accountability, right? We, we have completely, I believe, in the modern church, twisted and inverted the New Testament model, which is 
strict accountability for those inside the church, but real grace for those outside of the church because they don't know better. They don't know God. And instead, we have done the exact opposite. We are incredibly strict and, and unforgiving to those outside of the church, but we practice nothing and preach nothing but bottomless grace for those inside the church when really that is just not the biblical model. The, the, the unwillingness to hold our churches accountable, whether it's the SBC uh, abuse crisis, whether it's individual churches grappling with their political engagement whether it's just questions of sort of truth and discernment and working through that, we are called to hold one another accountable. And I think both at an individual level and at sort of a collective corporate level, that's been lacking in the church. And so that call for accountability, I think, is central. The final thing I would say is just you know, truth, accountability, and priorities. Ultimately, where are your priorities? I close the book by returning to my home church and watching my dad's successor there, a young pastor who took over this big church who really struggled mightily when he took over and ultimately almost walked away from the church because he was so scarred by everything that he'd endured. When I went back, he preached this unbelievable sermon comparing the infinite nature of the church to the finite nature of the culture wars and our political elections and all of these you know kind of tribal disagreements that we have that are so ultimately ephemeral and, and fleeting and unimportant particularly unimportant relative to that infinite mission of the church which is to take that gospel to the ends of the earth to all the nations and and to evangelize and ultimately as a matter of priorities you cannot effectively evangelize if your brand as evangelicals is wrapped up in politics and in culture wars and in all of these other things that have nothing to do with the gospel. In other words, you really ultimately have to choose. And I, and I as a journalist, am trained to avoid binaries. <laughs> and this is really an instance where it is actually quite a binary. And we are taught throughout scripture that it's sort of a non-negotiable, that if you are called to that kingdom of God, then that is where your citizenship is. Dual citizenship is not an option. That that if you are called to follow Jesus, then you are to lay down everything else and follow him. You know, the, the parable that Jesus tells where the man finds a treasure buried in a field, right? What does he do? He goes and sells everything else that he has, everything, just so that he has enough to then buy that field. Right. And that is what we are called to do as believers. We are called to sell everything else just so that we can buy that field, so that we can have that treasure. And that's where our priority must be. And sadly, that message is not always a popular one. Yeah. Yeah. I so appreciate that, Tim. Can I tell you one of the more hopeful things that I read in your book, though? There is there is a lot of a lot of hope, a lot of things to to hold on to that you offer. But you talk about Curtis Chang meeting with some some secular funders to support an effort he, he's he's working on. And you describe Curtis as sort of apologizing to the group that things have gotten so bad. And he, he says, you know, this is this is our this this is basically like my problem. This is evangelicals problem and we have to solve it. 
and one of the funders in the room, and I've heard similar things sort of piercing through this, said, no, this is our problem. And the funder said, you know, we've actually at times played into and given merit to some of the claims of the religious right, that evangelicals weren't welcome in the public square and and that we didn't want to hear from them and that sort of thing. And so you just spoke quite a bit about what evangelicals can do, but zoom out a bit. Evangelicals aren't going anywhere. <laughs> like it's it's really important. I'm so glad you mentioned we're talking about tens of millions of people. And so the vision for the future can't be, well, they're fading out. You know, enlightenment is gonna take over and and really we just need to outlast the final embers. We have we have to think about how we're gonna live together. What do you think it requires? How how can non-evangelicals How can civic leaders help promote the best of evangelicalism or at least promote an environment in which the best of evangelicalism can flourish and undermine some of the not so great elements that you talk about in the book? You know, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Daniel Darling, who I'm sure you guys both know. Daniel was formerly at one point the head of communications for the national religious broadcasters and then he was fired somewhat famously or infamously because he went on morning joe and uh, endorsed the vaccine and talked about how they'd lost family and friends and and to covid-19 and how he was encouraging other believers to get the vaccine and he was fired for that well i, I was talking with daniel not long after that episode And he was complaining to me about the disproportionate media coverage, how in his hometown in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, where he was living at the time, how there were all of these churches there that were coming together and do uh, executing these amazing programs aimed at like child literacy and childhood hunger and helping a lot of underprivileged kids in the community. And that the churches were doing this amazing work and, and, you know, they weren't getting any fanfare and they weren't asking for any fanfare, but that every Sunday, it seemed like, Somebody was coming to town to write about Greg Locke and his Global Vision Church there in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, which is sort of a big blood and soil, you know, tent revival church setting that is really just way off the rails with, with, with the rhetoric and with their practices there. And what was so interesting is Daniel was saying, you know, why is it that that church is getting constant coverage And everybody knows who Greg Locke is and the crazy things he's saying, but they don't know any of this good work we're doing in the community. Now, I mean, look, as a a member of the mainstream media, I get it at some, to some degree, right? That, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, man bites dog, all of that. Like there, there is news value certainly to covering a Greg Locke. And I do so in the book, but I also think that Daniel's raising a legitimate point there that if you were to just go off of the headlines and just sort of skim the surface of what evangelicalism means in the modern culture, you would think that the evangelical movement is one big MAGA hothouse that's completely lost all sense of its calling and that the whole of the evangelical world is tilted way, way, way off of its axis. And that's simply not the case. I think what we're dealing with here is in some ways, very analogous to what we've seen in other elements of American life, which is that the fringe has become more vocal, more influential, 
better organized. And in some sense, they have overtaken the mainstream and and they have effectively sort of blocked out the mainstream and and cast a vision for an entire movement that is not remotely representative of where the majority of that movement is. So there is certainly a call from inside the house, and that's what I try to do with much of the book for for call them whatever you want, you know, the, the, the coalition of, of sane evangelicals or whatever to sort of reclaim the mantle from that fringe. And, and that's hugely important. And that's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of that accountability work that I talked about a moment ago. But I also think there it is important for those outside the church to deal with the evangelical movement honestly, and to deal with it proportionally and to, and to, incorporate the appropriate nuance and perspective in dealing with a movement that is, you know, tens of millions of people large and try to understand that as disgusted as you may be as a secular progressive person somewhere with what you see from, you know, Greg Locke or from, you know, some other evangelical figurehead understand that there are tens of millions of evangelicals inside the church who are also disgusted and who maybe up to this point haven't done enough to uh, to really try to make that right and to address what's gone wrong. But hopefully with some nudging from the likes of you know this podcast and other places, hopefully they'll they'll, they'll get to that point where, they can work to clean up their own house while simultaneously extending a hand of friendship and partnership to the outside world to hopefully show that there is hope and that there is, I mean, listen, we know that there's hope. We know that, you know, those of us who are believers, we know that that Christ is sovereign in all of this. And that ultimately, as my dad used to love to say, that God doesn't bite his fingernails. But in dealing with this question of the sustainability of a pluralistic society, we have to recognize that that distrust that exists in the secular world is not without legitimacy. And at the same time, also emphasize that this ugly caricature of evangelicals that exists, that that is not fair either, and that it needs to be addressed from both sides of of the equation. I mean, you have this closing set of words from Rachel Den Hollander, I think in the interview that you guys did together, Tim, where she says, don't forget about journalism. Remember that journalism is what, you know, is upstream of any change that happens. Change happens when the law catches up to public narrative. What drives public narrative? Journalism. And so you've done something with this book. It's courageous. It's a labor of love. It's a big tome. It's subterranean. What's going on underneath the surface these last 40 years or so? Thanks for what you did with the book and can't wait to read the real thing. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Great talking with you, Tim. Yeah, it was great. It was a pleasure to talk with you guys about this. And I hope even if there's one person out there listening who this helps to get their head in a better space as it pertains to all of this, then that'll be a, a win. So I really appreciate the opportunity, you guys. Faith Angle connects leading scholars and leading journalists across parties, faith traditions, and sectors. Thanks for listening.